When Chinese President Xi Jinping announced the new Silk Road, or the Belt and Road Initiative in 2013, he did so not from China, but during a visit to Kazakhstan, where the original Silk Road crisscrossed starting around the year 226 BCE. Today, I wanted to drop in on a friend in Kazakhstan, not only because she has a front row seat to the impacts of China's economic expansion, but also since she has a unique view of the ESG factors that work globally, given her line of work. Janar Faizoldayeva is an environmental social consultant working on mining-related projects in Central Asia, including pre-IPO due diligence on the uranium properties of Kazatomprom, the world's largest uranium producer. Her clients include some of the world's foremost mining companies and international agencies, and she co-authored the World Bank's Mine Closure Toolbox. I met Janar in Kyrgyzstan, where she and I developed a post-closure economic redevelopment plan for the largest gold mine. In a moment, we'll join Janar in Almaty, Kazakhstan. Stay tuned. Inside ESG is a timely new production which takes you inside the work of practitioners on the ground, chief risk officers, market analysts, cybersecurity experts, and founders of game-changing startups. We'll talk with specialists in every corner of the globe, across industries and issues, dropping into Argentina to hear about lithium mining, Central Asia for a view of China's Belt and Road Initiative, and West Africa for a perspective on climate risk, among other stops. Welcome, Janar. It's nice to see you again. So not only do you have a front row seat to the Belt and Road project, but you worked on due diligence for the land acquisition for it. What are you seeing in terms of the pace of the Belt and Road project? Uh, hi, Maureen. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here and to answer your question. Well, it was an excellent infrastructure project for the whole nation. It improved the road quality and uh, the land acquisition process was managed by the donors. So uh, European Bank of Reconstruction and Development and also Asian Development Bank were involved. So they were overseeing that the uh, resettlement of people was done up to the international standards. So that was a good example of how it should be done. And I think the people who were affected by it were treated fairly. They actually, most of them ended up moving to our capital, Astana. So that was kind of an improvement of their livelihoods in the end. That was, I would say, one of the positive examples of how a project like that can impact many lives, but also improve uh, quite an important economic part of a uh, whole nation. So sanctions against Russian energy exports have not yet included uranium, which is interesting in that it underscores how critical it is. You were part of the team doing due diligence ahead of the 2018 London Stock Exchange IPO of Kazatomprom, the world's largest uranium producer. How did that experience inform your views on the uranium market and nuclear power? Uh well, it was yet another excellent project to be part of, but 
what it really informed me about is I learned a lot about the management of environmental side of things of all of the sites at Kazatamprom. And I was uh, quite impressed by the way they deal with the uh, mining and uh, the, all of the mining is done by in-situ leaching in Kazakhstan. And it's very safe. It's considered by the International Atomic Agency as one of the safest methods to mine uranium at the moment. And uh, of course, being humbled by the fact that, you know, this is the largest producer of uranium in the world and to help them a tiny bit to do the IPO, which went so successfully. That was a good thing. Yeah, we're very proud of that. But I think what will happen actually in the future, there is a potential for the Russian uranium to be sanctioned. And what I think would be quite interesting to see how it will affect Kazatomprom in the way that about 20% of the atom, uh, assets of Kazatomprom actually are uh, owned by Rosatom, which is a Russian company. So say Russian uranium will be sanctioned, but uh, Kazakh you know, Kazatomprom will not be. I do wonder how that will affect the market because Kazatomprom is now largest producer, about 40% of uranium in the world is produced by our national uranium company. So that would be interesting to look out for. Definitely. And so Kazakhstan currently has no nuclear power plant, but you're expecting the government will invite bids for the construction of a new one. What do you think this plant could do in terms of Central Asia's net zero commitments? Uh, so at the moment, uh, Kazakhstan is considering uh, several bids, and those include France, uh, Japan, China, and Russia, of course. Uh, and it will be very exciting to see what they will come up with and i hope the tender will be transparent so one of the issues why there is a bit of an opposition towards nuclear power plant uh, building in kazakhstan is the fear of the safety uh, in light of what happened at fukushima in japan in 2011 and uh, of course uh, the fact that in kazakhstan we have a bit of an issue with corruption but it's inevitable, I would say, and this is what uh, the government understands. And my personal opinion is that to reach the very ambitious uh, net zero target that Kazakhstan set by the 2060, we'll have to have not one, probably several nuclear power plants. And at the moment, um, it was already announced that there is an energy deficit in the country. I don't know if you know it, but this is an, another interesting fact that uh, about a year ago, there was a huge boom of cryptocurrency mining in Kazakhstan uh, because the energy is so cheap and it's produced mostly by coal. Uh, they targeted Kazakhstan and by they, I mean people who were mining the cryptocurrency and there were these mining farms all around the power plants and that put a huge strain on the power system in Kazakhstan. But uh, later on, Kazakhstan introduced tax on the cryptocurrency mining, and that has drastically decreased the number of the farms. Um, so I think if Kazakhstan will build a nuclear power plant, it will be definitely the um, biggest uh, portion of our towards our achievement of the net zero targets. 
So given the decommissioning of the plant at Octao in 1999, how do you think the next plant might deal with the institutional memory loss in the sector for operating the plant? That's an excellent, actually, question, because I think everyone who has worked on the power plant that was decommissioned have probably retired by now. And so that would mean there would be a very long lag time-wise into training people and making sure that they are up to the level of um, you know knowledge and experience. And I'm sure that would probably and not probably 100% probably involve bringing in a specialist from the countries where the nuclear uh, power is active. So they have that institutional knowledge that can be then transferred into Kazakhstan. Um, and so I think that's going to be actually a huge issue apart from actually, you know, selecting the site, building it, which is going to take at least 10 years, I think. So yeah, building, building up the capacity will be a next big issue. You've uh, mentioned before to me that you've noticed a uh, shift in Kazakhstan towards greater awareness of environmental liabilities, both financial and technical. Um, and then recently you spoke at the Minex Forum in Astana about the increasing importance of social license to operate in Kazakhstan, driven by changes in environmental mining and tax legislation. Um, so what are some of these changes so I think uh, the biggest change actually was the environmental code was totally um, updated in 2021. And that involved actually some consultation with the uh, OSCE countries. So developed countries have actually consulted with our government to, in order to bring our environmental regulations up to the international standards and the good international practices. So that also involved an update on the environmental impact assessment. So in the past, um, any project could have gotten clearance and environmental permit within three or four months, you know, within a permitting process, which, of course, if you're talking about a mining project, that is a very short time to actually understand all the impacts. And there was only one public hearing, and that would only be a sort of a check checking exercise. And uh, what my talk was about is the fact that in the past, before the legislation changed, I have looked up the number of participants on average in one of the central most active mining areas in Kazakhstan per year. And I have found out that usually on average, there would be one to two people from the local communities actually attending the public consultation and public hearings, which was a crucial part of the permitting. And uh, what has happened now, and I think, you know, the development of social media, the ease of understanding and the speed at which the information can now be uh, distributed is uh, contributed to the fact that people are much more active now. And they're not only uh, interested in, say, employment or some economical benefits from the project, they ask the questions about environmental management and mitigation of all the impacts. And so we have had already two projects here in Kazakhstan that had some issues uh, within the communities because they didn't agree with what the company has uh, suggested and uh, provided. Um, and my talk was on the fact that not only does the community actually evolve and they now understand 
what they want and what they can ask for. Uh, legislation is also supporting that movement. And now, if I said in the past, there would only be one public hearing. Now, in the whole process of environmental impact assessment and permitting, there can be up to four public hearings. And they are properly designed to make sure that everyone has a chance to comment or ask a question within that process. So I'm wondering, to what extent might the pandemic have been a preview of the disruption in the critical materials supply chain, uh, as well as chips, cars, and computers in general, caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine? I think actually pandemic just started that. So this was just the start of um, a growing issue with critical minerals. And uh, because there was some supply chain disruptions that were obvious during the pandemic, and they have worsened when this war started in Ukraine, uh, China decided to, as we understand it, keep the critical minerals within the country. And that impacted so many industries, you know, from the computers, productions and all the, uh, you know, electric cars and so on. And so it was obvious that the countries uh, in Europe and the United States as well have to come up with a program of diversifying the sources for the critical minerals. And uh, this actually topic was one of the main topics at the past minings that we attended here in Kazakhstan. And uh, uh, they were talking about how copper, for example, have been added to the list of strategic minerals. And there is a huge lobbying going on on saying how copper should be added to the list of critical minerals. And the reason why we were talking about it in Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan has opened up with the latest legislation and is inviting foreign investors to come and explore the country. Uh, a country hasn't had any big discoveries since the Soviet Union, but there is an indication that there might be a, a tier one uh, deposit here in Kazakhstan of copper. And therefore, we have now, we see the surge of um, large mining companies coming into Kazakhstan and trying to look for that deposit and find more copper. And actually, recently, I also listened to this uh, panel discussing the issue of critical minerals. And there, the CEOs in the, from the South American um, companies were saying how in the next 20 years, we'll have to produce the same amount of copper that we have used as humanity since we started developing in order to maintain the economy at the level of 3% growth. So that does not include uh, all the uh, you know, renewables that use much more copper. It doesn't include the electrical vehicles and all the other um, you know, equipment that is associated with the transitioning to the carbon neutral economies. So that again underlines how copper is critical and it will be much more in demand as we progress with this um, transitioning. Yes, and it, it makes it clear why uh, I've heard certain CEOs um, of copper ventures say that copper is the new gold with that kind of demand forecast. Uh, how else has the war in Ukraine impacted you and just everyday life in Kazakhstan? So when war has started, the first 
kind of reaction of uh, population here in Kazakhstan, and I, I would say probably in Central Asia, was of a shock, of course, because they are so close to us geographically, and this is our um, nation that we are very friendly with, um, that we felt very sad for the situation that, um, you know, our brothers and sisters from the Soviet Union times are suffering so much. And uh, there was a huge kind of, you know, support and outpouring of help, of humanitarian help that was sent to Ukraine from our countries. But also um, not, you know, lessening the pain and horror that the war has brought. It did impact our lives here, although we are kind of also far away. But as I mentioned earlier, supply chain have disrupted uh, throughout the region. And initially there was lack of some not so obvious products that you wouldn't think that there would be lack of. Like, for example, for about a month, I couldn't find any cat food that I usually buy for my cats. And that led to the increase of the price for cats and dog food, you know, pet food by about, you know, twice it went up by price. And so you would think it's not the most obvious, you know, impact that you would think of in the region, but it's one of them. And I know that another impact is that, you know, domestic chemical products have increased in price significantly. And people were complaining how, you know, they have to go for cheaper brands and because cost of living is going up as it is. And additional impact, and I would say two additional uh, impacts, one I would say slightly negative, another one is very positive, is that when the mobilization in Russia has been announced, uh, about 2 million people have moved into Kazakhstan. So they were trying to avoid the draft into the army. And that has caused some initial tension in society because there was a large number of males suddenly everywhere. There was this, you know, we were joking uh, with my friends, like, you know, that song, It's Raining Men, that was Almari in the September because everywhere you go, all the coffee shops, all the bars were just full of uh, Russian males. And we felt for them, I mean, we understood they are in a difficult situation, but that also has pushed up the price for rent, unfortunately, a lot higher than you would imagine it to be. And so I would say sometimes in some places, the prices are compatible with the renting, say, in London. So you would think, here we are in Almaty, and the prices are just ridiculously high. And I mentioned the positive change. It's that um, there was a boom in learning Kazakh language by uh, Kazakhs in Kazakhstan. So one of the legacies that we had from Soviet Union is that most of our population spoke Russian language and actually the minority spoke initially in Kazakh. But that has started like changing as we progress into our independence. And now we can just uh, see that there's this absolute explosion of uh, interest in local Kazakhs just because they want to speak their own language. And... Uh, they associated that with what they call the colonization process, finally from Russia. And so I am very glad to see that that was a very positive impact from what has happened from such a sad event that has happened with Ukraine. And other countries, too, uh, there's been uh, more of a return to um, local languages, too, right? Um, yeah. Kyrgyz Republic. Yeah, so we hear that from our neighbors because Kyrgyzstan was just 
just like us, the same, same legacy, same history. And um, there was definitely that movement towards, you know, um, self-identification as who they are, Kyrgyz people, or who we are, Kazakh people, and uh, towards, you know, learning your own language and owning your own culture. So that was a good, good positive impact from that. I would agree. So, Jinnar, thanks very much for joining us today. And I very much look forward to our next conversation. Maureen, thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure and I'm looking forward to speaking to you again. Thanks for joining us today. To make sure you don't miss out on our next episode, subscribe to the Inside ESG podcast on Spotify or any podcast platform, the YouTube channel, the LinkedIn newsletter, and our mailing list on InsideESG.com. See you next time.